Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Good Grow Great podcast. I'm Talia Toha, and this is Great Lengths. This is the episode where we go into great lengths with a person that we have、uh, from various different industries, different backgrounds, so that we can really learn some high-level concepts. We can extract and sit down with me, essentially, so that we can then share it back to you guys who are listening.、Uh, but today we're going to be talking with Michael Bunadiz, who's really, really had a prolific career. After launching Robert De Niro's and Matsuhisa's famous Nobu restaurant in New York, and becoming a key player behind the success of brands like Four Seasons, Marriott International, The Empire State Building, WeWork, Five Star Mondrian Hotel in Qatar, Neiman Marcus, Starwood Hotels—the list goes on. You guys, there's not even enough time to share all of the different names that he's worked with. This James Beard Award winner and proud father of sons, Michael Bunadiz is here. Michael Bunadiz of Bunadiz Hospitality is going to be sharing with you guys today how he originally became a key player in expanding Nobu, even during the mobster days, and some interesting stories about their interaction with the mob and the mafia in New York. And、uh, obviously, Nobu now is known as a celebrity hotspot, having now grown to over 40 different locations worldwide, all from you know a small little name in the U.S. And of course, he's also going to be sharing a little bit of his personal take on how he got started, and clues that confirmed why restaurant and food industry is right for him, and how you can do the same with whatever calling that you feel compelled to to pursue. Right? He's also going to be sharing components for setting yourself apart. Early in your market, or maybe even further down、uh, in your work in your business, and so we're going to be taking some key lessons and case studies from Nobu New York launch, and、um, also high-level ways to measure profitability, right? And a case study of the differences behind the scenes between restaurants and hotels, which can be quite surprising. I think not a lot of people know about some of the things that he's going to share,、um, and also, of course, we're going to be talking comfort foods that he grew up with in a multi. Cultural Italian family, which is phenomenal.、Uh, what he would have done differently if he was to start all over again? Believe it or not, there are certain things that he would have done differently, no matter the success that he's achieved. So, all of that and more, you guys. Before we begin, be sure to hit that follow, subscribe, add, collect, save, and download. That way, you have this episode ready. When you're out and about, and you don't have Wi-Fi or you don't have data, and it's all going to be there for you. So, without further ado, you guys, let's get started. Okay, Michael, welcome. I'm so excited that you're here, and you have a lot that we can talk about. And before we even go to、uh, Myriad, before we go to your Just vast, vast experience and Nobu and all of that. I wanted to actually start in uh, uh, the, an area that I think is near and dear to my heart, which is the way that we、uh, we we grew up, right? And you grew up. You had mentioned you grew up in an Italian household. So I'm kind of curious, and I know that you know the Italians are are well known for just their generosity and just their warmth. 
Has uh, does hospitality, restaurant industry, did that ever cross your mind growing up, or is that something that in the future, when you were an adult, you started to entertain? No, uh, it hospitality restaurants uh, probably was the very last thing I ever considered. Um, you know, growing up, I mean, growing up, I wanted to be a forest ranger or a monk and not have to talk to anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, I was the introvert of introverts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, to me to think about being out there with in the public on a daily basis in a restaurant, a hotel or, or whatever was uh, terrifying. And, and so against who I thought I was at that time. Um, growing up in a, an Italian-American family, you know, hospitality is expressed through food. Love is expressed through food. And, you know, my greatest memories of growing up were the different holidays and the specific foods related to those holidays that my grandmother and my great aunts made. You know, I was also blessed that my grandfather and, and some of his brothers were also either butchers or great cooks. You know, my father was a great cook. And, um, you know, when I went off to college and, you know, the second year at Georgetown, you know, there wasn't enough housing. So myself and, a, you know, four of my rugby mates, you know, said, OK, let's get a house. We've got a house in Arlington. And I look at these four Irishmen and said, I'm going to starve, you know. So I went to my grandmother that summer and, uh, Hey, come on, you gotta teach me how to cook. And, um, you know, that definitely, um, you know, is a source of pride. It's something I've taken great pains to teach my sons. Um, and since my wife is a Persian Armenian, um, heritage, um, you know, I got very interested in Persian cuisine. Um, and it's, it's a whole nother spectrum of, of flavors and ingredients. And, you know, I've also uh, taught my sons, uh, to do that. And, and I have to say all three of them are pretty good cooks. Nice. You, you've educated your sons well, obviously. And I think women or men, I think they all need to know how to cook or at least the basics, some of the favorites, right? Uh, what was your uh, favorite food growing up? Was it grandma's, you know, whatever pasta dish? Was it just uh, something that you picked up after school? Like what was that? Thing? I had two. Um, and my Italian grandmother used to make what she called pasta la deck, which was essentially a sausage and lentil stew with broken leftover pasta. That was so addictive. I, I yeah. literally had it this week, you know, for like three meals because I make always make a big batch. And my other favorite meal was my maternal grandmother, who was a farm girl from southern Indiana, Latin high school teacher who couldn't cook for shit. <laughs> inedible but her fried chicken was the one thing that she made that was absolutely out of this world and my mother did a pretty good job of it as well but her being much more health conscious never made the cream gravy at the end uh that my grandmother did but those would be the two pasta la deck and, and southern indiana fried chicken and a cast iron skillet oh that sounds i mean i'm hungry even just listening to i'm you. getting hungry too yeah. i mean yeah, this is this is another. I feel like this is another podcast. Is all yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Every yeah. meals. Yeah. Um, well, and there's so much. I think the richness of, and I know that people, you know, our audience and students and listeners, they, you know, they come from various different backgrounds. So I love just this perspective that you shared from your Italian grandmother. You know, the the, the other side of the family as well. Um, but I am kind of curious when you started to kind of transform this into, you know, something more professional, right? 
And um, so I'm, I want to ask you how you started in the restaurant business, because clearly you've uh, had this just prolific career ranging from, you know, anything from hotel brands all the way to, um, you know, Robert De Niro's concept, Nobu and the, the beautiful Japanese sushi, all of those things. So how did you get started? Uh, well, I, uh, in college, I worked construction for one of my uncles or cousins um, and, you know, helped to pay for school. And, um, but my sophomore summer, I spent a, the summer studying at Oxford University in England. I came back dead broke. I told everybody I knew if they knew of a job uh, to let me know. And I was wide open. And um, one of my housemates, a rugby mate, was working as a cook in a, a bar called Clyde's in D.C. He showed up at the party like two in the morning and said, um, we need a dishwasher for brunch tomorrow. Do you want to do it? I said, definitely. Well, at this time, I was a virgin. I was a theology major. I was intent on the priesthood and probably becoming a, a, a monk. Um, and then somehow I proceeded to lose my virginity that night and with no sleep, showed up and washed the dishes for 10 hours, got fed. And at the end of my shift, Booker T said, you want go get you two shift drinks. So I go out to the bar. The bartender hands me the shot and the beer I asked for. And says, kid, you know what I love about this business? It's the only business I know of where you can show up broke, thirsty, hungry, and horny and get all your needs taken care of. So I went to the dean the next day and changed my major. <laughs> I ended up minoring in theology, and it's certainly, I think, been very important um, in helping me understand the place in today's world that restaurants, bars, and great hotels play. Um, you know, in, in fulfilling some of the missing pieces, if you will, in the, our secular society um, that, uh, you know, were very much part of uh, human nature. And, uh, you know, I think it was also, I, I enjoyed it. I love the action. I mean, I always played competitive sports. Um, you know, the restaurant had that level of energy, of stress, of chaos, um, that I, you know, really thrived on in, in, in playing team sports. It was also a team effort. So I think, you know, it was a, com a combination of factors that really, you know, sort of spoke to me. And, and you know, basically I, I, I advise people that are interested in the business today that, you know, it's a business that calls you. It's mm -hmm. like American football. You either like to be hit and hit other people or you don't the yeah. restaurant business is ex exactly the same you either love the chaos and the craziness and the pressure or you hate it you know there's really no middle ground um yeah. and i i'm a i have to i'm an adrenaline junkie i'm a k i love chaos um and i love sort of you know leading a team through it on a, on a you know a daily nightly basis yeah. Well, and I think I you brought up a really interesting point, which I think a lot of people overlook when they think about their their work and their life and how it's conflicting or maybe not so much. And they haven't found quite that uh, that 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 level of comfort with what they're doing, whatever the space is. But you touched on the the environment you've, and how you found 
how it's actually where you thrive, which is, which can be, like you said, it can be, it can be kind of opposite to what a lot of people find is, is their sweet spot. Some people, maybe that's not their jam. You know, some people prefer that they're on their own, not a team play, whatever. Right. And it doesn't matter. I don't think, but it matters that we find clarity on, you know, what that is. And I'm so uh, happy that you found that because clearly it's really paid off in the course of your, um, in the course of your life. Now, I wanted to ask you because when people found something that's exciting, right, and, and maybe knew there's a novelty aspect to it, and this is obviously dating back several years now for you, but I wanted to ask you whether, you know, maybe in the first couple of years or so, or maybe first five years, where you're in that space, in that industry, maybe as a dishwasher, or you're just new to the restaurant industry, um, did you ever take a detour uh, into something different, something that's like, oh, I'm so done with this. I hate the hours, right? all these things. Yeah. And then um, when did you realize then finally that, you know what, let me circle back because this is the right thing for me? Uh, you know, when I started, the restaurant business was not a celebrity business. It wasn't this glamorous business that led to t- careers in TV or celebrity chefs. And actually, you know, it wasn't too long ago I came across a survey of the prison population at, at the, the late 70s. And, and literally close to 70% of all the inmates listed their occupation as cook. Mm. Um, and literally, I, when I started in the kitchen, I got promoted each time because somebody ahead of me got arrested or sent back to prison on a parole violation. So restaurants at that time in America were the farthest thing from the celebrity industry that they are today. Um, They were fun. They were wild. Um, They were a bit of a circus. Um, And it was a great way um, to work part-time in school, still play, you know, rugby and, and make some money. Um, you know, and, but once I found, I worked all my way up the line cook, then I found out how much the waiters made. And, you know, there was no goal of becoming a, a celebrity chef at that time. It was all about, right, let, let me go to the front of the house and make more money and get more dates. <clears throat> so I moved to the front of the house and worked all the positions. And, you know, to me on graduating, you know, I wanted to write, you know, that once I moved from the- theology to English literature, you know, for me, it was really, I wanted to express myself writing creatively. So restaurants became a way to sort of fund that, if you will, like so many other people, um, particularly in your major markets, LA, New York, London, where, okay, I'm a, I want to, I want to sort of drive and, and create a creative career. Well, how do I support myself? You know, restaurants, um, particularly because they're at off at night and weekends, you know, give you that opportunity. Um, so I always had this love hate, um, with restaurants that I loved it, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to make it as a writer. Mm. Um, so there, w- it, there was a bit of a de- detour. Um, you know, I moved to New York. I, I made, had some success writing. I made enough money to quit. Um, but after six months, I got sick of talking to myself in my, you know, small New York apartment. Yeah. And so I got to get back in the action. Yeah. And, and I called my you know, Drew Neporn, who was later my partner and co-founding Myriad, I said, and he was managing uh, Trebekah Grill. I said, Drew, give me two nights a week as a captain. So I went back and worked two nights a week 
um, for quite a while and did not jump back into the industry until my wife and I started a family. And that's when uh, we were both writers and we decided that it really was, um, we didn't want to move to LA because we were doing a lot of TV and film. We didn't love it. The, you know, the income was great one year and sucked the next. So I got the real job as the opening GM at Oriole. And as it turned out, not too long afterwards, a couple of the wine publications asked me to start to write for them. So I ended up um, being very, very incredibly lucky um, and, and creating not only a very successful restaurant and hospitality career, but a successful uh, writing career that, uh, you know, the high point of was winning a James Beard Award uh, for an article I wrote on Burgundy a number of years ago and publishing a book online. Yeah, so this is actually a very, I think, um, unique case where a lot of people who are in the creative space, you know, they, they feel like there's this contention constantly where the thing that pays the bill isn't really the thing that they want to do, but then the thing that they really want to do isn't paying the bill. Um, and yet you have beautifully kind of uh, continued to for- advance essentially throughout the course of the years, both aspects and successfully, you know, for, for that matter, which I think is very unique. And I want to kind of um, underline this topic just a second before I move on to the next question is I'm kind of curious, how have you been, how did you, if you can kind of recall from your memory bank, how did you maintain that kind of uh, alignment where, okay, I still have to move the writing along, but I have this massive opportunity in the restaurant space which I know is very time consuming, right? We all know they work very long hours. Most people, when they come home, they just want to go to sleep. And then, you know, the, the actual, the creative aspect of what they're passionate about gets forgotten year in and year out. And, and that never gets picked up. How did you, how were you able to kind of maintain that? that well, level of I life? was very lucky. I have a very understanding, patient and supportive wife who is also an incredible editor, having um, spent um, a good part of her early career in, as a magazine editor. So that su- support there on, on the writing certainly um, helped tremendously. Um, and I think probably the real secret was by the time my writing had take, really started to take off, you know, we had co-founded Myriad. I was a partner um, while I was very busy and I would, um, you know, be very hands-on in an opening. I wasn't tied to a specific restaurant. So it really allowed me to sort of carve out time um, for both. Um, And the truth is, 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 you know, I did that very successfully until 9-11, at which point I realized, and, and, you know, it was very clear, I had three young sons that were all starting to play, you know, little league and American football. And I had to make a decision. Um, and it wasn't a hard decision to make <clears throat> based on the tragedy in 9-11 that, you know, my time was better spent coaching my three sons on my free time than writing. So um, literally, I put writing aside for 20 years and just picked it up again during the pandemic. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think sometimes you have to make sacrifices and certainly to be successful, you have to make cert- certain sacrifices. And, and I think, a, listen, a big part of my career is being lucky the right time at the right place and having, I think some good gut instincts about, you know, the, the, the the forks in the road that I took. Yeah. Well, I think it's worth mentioning as well for the listeners who think that luck is all that, that plays into it. And the reality you spend a number of years up front on both 
right, on both writing and, and industry of restaurant and food, so that when the opportunity does come, of course, you're ready to, you know, you're ready to go. Absolutely. So I think there's definitely merit in that. And I, I actually want to highlight what you just mentioned earlier for people who missed it, you know, the, the word flexibility in that uh, you still found ways and opportunities where you can kind of move forward, but allows that flexibility to kind of move in and out. And of course, the right partner is important. And for people who don't have partners, I think it's worth mentioning the right business opportunities, right? Don't just pick anything, pick the right ones. No, yeah. I, it, it, it's, you know, the restaurant business, it's about, you know, you're sort of taught not to say no. Well, I teach people how to say no. Yeah. And I think that into terms of careers too, I think that it, you have to be very smart in what you say no to. And, and it takes a while, I think, to understand it. But to your point about what's the right opportunity, if you say yes to everything, you're never going to find the right opportunity you're going to waste a lot of time. So I think um, people's discipline to say no can really help them find their true path. Um, And, you know, you can be offered opportunities that sound very exciting, but I think you need to think them through and do they really feel right? And are these the right people to, you know, go to work with, you know, are, are you going to be fulfilled and are you going to be challenged in the right kind of ways or are you, or not. And, you know, and I think that's partly a maturation process, but I think um, being, not being afraid to say no has been very important in my career. And I think it, it helps people quite a bit once they learn how to do it the right way. Yeah. Well, and to your point, um, you know, as far as saying no, because then it opens up opportunities to say yes to the right ones, Exactly, which I think is phenomenal to, for anyone, myself, including to always be reminded of, right? I think these are things that we constantly kind of get detoured and constantly kind of stray away from, but just having that reminder is phenomenal. Uh, Now, speaking about yes and no, now I know that you were one of the key players behind the success of Nobu, uh, which obviously is just, had been this massive, massive success, and we'll talk about the whole, you know, celebrity chef glamour and everything. Uh, but before Nobu is Nobu is a household name. Did you, what was that, the, the initiation of that partnership when you jumped into the picture, were they already successful? Did you, right? Cause again, going back. Yeah, to- the, the, the history of it is, is, is Matsuhisa, which was Nobu's uh, first American restaurant. And, and Beverly Hills was Bobby De Niro's favorite place. He wanted, and we had, he had re- approached uh, Drew to create Tribeca Grill in the basement of, or not in the basement, in the ground floor of an uh, old coffee plant that he and some partners had bought and he wanted as his offices. And that's where Merrimack's offices ended up. And, you know, really wanted it as a sort of a film industry center in lower Manhattan. Um, <clears throat> so based on that relationship, you know, he said, listen, I want to bring Matsuhisa's to New York. So we looked for spaces. We came across the space just down the block uh, from Tribeca Grill. And um, and we were about to sign the lease because apparently, the, you know, the current tenant hadn't been paying rent and was going to be evicted. And uh, this guy, Joey California, showed up, you know, real New York mobster and says, I'm your partner. And we knew it had been a mob place forever. 
Yeah. So we uh, talked to some guys we knew. We talked to some cops we knew. And they all said, this guy's crazy. Walk away. So we walked away. <clears throat> and we keep on looking for spaces because De Niro wants to bring Nobu restaurant to New York. Um, <clears throat> and we the landlord comes back to us like a year, 18 months later, says the lease is up. So we call the cops we know. We call the, the mob-connected guys we know. And they all say, no one's seen him in six months. We're 99.9%. He's buried in the Meadowlands or somewhere else. So we say, okay, let's sign the lease. We sign the lease. But then we don't want these guys showing up because there's always been a hangout. So Nobu opens up with a service bar and not a real bar. And years later when Zuma came along and Zuma is really the only concept that truly has competed head to head with Nobu. And I think in some ways beaten Nobu in the last 10 years, <clears throat> the owners of Zuma <clears throat> realized that great bars, great cocktails at the time, 10 years ago or so were not part of the Nobu DNA because of the original restaurant, our original decision to make sure these mob guys didn't have a place to hang out at the bar. You know, as it turns out, the Russian mob, mob loved us and came in and spent a ton of money. But, <laughs> you know, it's funny, these decisions that really <clears throat> ultimately impact the DNA and, and sort of the arc of a brand, but then also give some a competitor a potential opening. And, and certainly Zuma has done a phenomenal job of bringing the energy and the younger vibe into a similar concept to Nobu uh, via their bar program. Yeah, I'm curious about, because with the service bar, obviously, you did it pragmatically. It was to avoid conflict and avoid the mobsters to come back and made it a watering hole. You know, you don't want that. But I'm kind of curious when you start to realize that that became your identity or were you consciously, as you move forward, um, this is something that, and actually at the time, maybe let's backtrack a little bit. At the time, was that something that, you know, not having a service bar, was that something that concepts similar to yours, if there are any at that time, uh, also did or did not do? Did they also have... Well, at that time, listen, our lineage was coming out of, in the New York City, primarily French or French-influenced restaurants, which were really... and, And at the time, it was all about wine and wine lists and wine programs. You know, cocktails did not the rebirth of cocktails did not happen until the late nineties, you know, partly, you know, it was a lot of great bartenders wanting to revive that art. And also, you know, my point of view, listen, as a restaurateur, you have sort of this great window on social societal trends um, and particularly in New York. And, you know, what really struck me in regards to what helped cocktails become what they become today is that all the tech, the dot-com millionaires had nobody mentoring them like you had historically in New York with the investment banks and the big law firms where the partners would take out the young associates and teach them how to order off a wine list and get them interested in wine. These young people had no time for that. So for them, they could look sophisticated by ordering a martini or a Cosmo or whatever, you know, were the popular cocktails of the time. And that's, you know, and they couldn't, they didn't have to embarrass themselves by trying to navigate a wine list, which they had no clue to. 
So I think it was a combination of, you know, we were wine guys. We'd come out of wine restaurants. Cocktails hadn't yet hit. So it was very easy to say, okay, we don't need a bar. Although, uh, you know, the, probably the most important lesson I've learned in my career is from the first place I worked, Clyde's. They had two bars, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the success of those bars, um, you know, has stuck with me to this day. And, you know, I really, you know, Nobu certainly an exception and a unique exception because of Joey California and his pals. But, you know, I would never, ever open a restaurant again, be involved in a restaurant of any type today unless it had a big, a biggest bar as possible. I mean, the bar brings such energy and, and, and it's such a welcoming part of a restaurant. And perhaps most importantly, you know, it, it's, it's a lower cost of entry. You know, no matter how expensive the restaurant is, you can experience some of the food and some of the beverage at a fraction of a pot price versus sitting down for a two or three hour meal. And, uh, you know, and, and in today's world, we're also pressed for time. You know, the bar to me, a great bar provides a great opportunity to deliver the value of, you know, really sort of compressed experience that delivers value in terms of time spent. I love, I mean, you touched on so many things here. I think particularly for people who are listening who um, may not be in the restaurant space, but trying to get those ideas on how to differentiate themselves from the rest. And I love how you highlighted that sometimes it's not a very obvious process. Sometimes you just kind of, there are forks in the road that you take that actually then became your differentiating factor, your unique value proposition, right? All of these things that sometimes because of the way things are become, you know, you're, you're known for that. And we'll touch on a specific dish that you had shared with me earlier that really took Nobu to the next level. But I'm kind of, uh, I want to highlight that, but also the fact that you mentioned the cost of entry um, and how bars in the restaurant space serve that purpose. And I think everyone who's listening Definitely adopt and adapt this to to your own specific space and industry because there are ways to kind of attract them, get them in the door, get them exciting, and then they'll easily seamlessly go into you know the full offering, whatever that might be, which is I think beautifully highlighted in in your specific case. And I'm kind of curious because for you, uh, you know, Nobu aside, you've had even more successes in the hospitality and hotel uh, world, right? And, you know, working with clients, all of the names that you can think of, Starwood, et cetera, you know, we can kind of keep going on with that list. But I'm kind of curious when you started to really have that become a big part of your life and business is the hospitality. I know that you started in restaurant, but when did that start to well, that started with Myriad. Um, you know, we had a good customer who owned the Millennium, Millennium Hotel in, in near Times Square and was very unhappy with his restaurant. Um, and then we started to get calls from other hotel owners or, or uh, hotel management companies. And, um, you know, a lot of it was kind of easy. Um, you know, one of the first consulting projects I did, you know, through Myriad was the Charles Hotel in Cambridge. And you know, the Dick Friedman, the owner, developer's brilliant hotel owner, brilliant developer, um, you know, and he, he was very, is very hands-on and, and very unhappy as, as successful as the opening was for the, you know, the three meal restaurant, 
um, <clears throat> there was something not right. <clears throat> so he pushed the management company to have me come up and it was kind of easy. Um, you know, this restaurant, one of the first farm to table and an affordable farm to table restaurant, which is rare even today, had become sort of the go-to power breakfast, power lunch for the Harvard, MIT, intelligentsia and, and the political class um, of Cambridge. And it was kind of, you know, for me, common sense, you know, there was this, and the theme was, it was a grandma's kitchen in New England. And they had these Hitchcock chairs, which were made not too far originally from where I grew up in Connecticut, but they were very tall Hitchcock chairs and no one could fucking see each other in this scene <laughs> restaurant. So I said, buy a saw and let's cut 20, 20 inches off. And and they did, and everybody could see each other. There you go. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of, you know, so, and then there was a couple other things like, you know, they did not have the service functionality uh-huh. that we put in all our restaurants, you know, yeah. so it was kind of put a couple service stations, you know, move the POSs around, you know, there's things that we did that certainly um, helped improve the service flow, but it really was, hey, no one could see each other. This is a CNBC restaurant, duh. <laughs> So, yeah. um, and then the other thing that gets to the point was a lot of the early hotel deals, you know, we're going in to try to, you know, they want us to fix a hotel restaurant. I said, well, yeah, there's no bar. Where's the bar? There you so, go. you know, and, and, and that, listen, there were dining rooms and dining rooms are incredibly boring. Um, you know, there's, you know, hotel guests will hit a bar. Hang we'll meet after we go to meetings, you know, so you put a bar in a restaurant, suddenly there's some energy in the restaurant. Um, and then, you know, we, we started to do, uh, a lot of the original W's we did, you know, a number of others. And then I, I realized, well, geez, it, you know, hell of a lot easier to run a hotel than run restaurants. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that was the opportunity to, to, you know, sort of join, uh, 21C and, and help create that brand as CEO and roll it out. Um, you know, it's a lot harder to run a restaurant or food and beverage in a hotel than it is hotel rooms. Okay, so for so, people who don't understand why it's a lot harder. Well, it, it's simple, simple, okay? It's two different mindsets. The hotel, you know, somebody who loves, you know, hotels as a career, when you say them to do something, they say, yes, sir, how high? You want me to jump? You know, you tell somebody in the restaurant business, they say, fuck you, you do it. <laughs> you know, it, it's entirely different. Yeah. And listen, hotels are very corporate. Restaurants are not corporate. Um, you know, the first, one of the first deals we did was up in Nantucket. The chef we sent up there was one of the most talented cooks and the most organized chefs I've ever worked with. But, you know, he, he, he comes, you know, it was like a collision with all this paperwork and all this bureaucracy and all this HR, all this nonsense. And listen, this is before, you know, cell phones and the internet. So one day we get a letter from him and it's a photograph of a pile of paper on a butch, you know, a, you know, a butcher block stand with a knife in it. And on the back of it, he's written, am I here to cook or do fucking paperwork? Oh, wow. And it was like, Oh, look, geez. It's a, you know, it's a, so, and that was a learning lesson for us because he yeah. self-destructed shortly thereafter that, you know, even within the restaurant talent world, there were certain people that were absolutely not right for the hotel world. And it was a learning process of, okay, who would thrive in, a, in that world or who would get really frustrated? And then certainly one of the best things I did was I would not do any hotel management deal 
unless I could bring in uh, one or two administrative managers who would do all the paperwork, who would you know, do what it takes um, so that my chefs and, and my managers could be on the floor in the kitchen where they belong and not in meetings. And, you know, and, 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 you know, another example was is we had an incredibly talented chef we put in a restaurant in Pittsburgh, a hotel restaurant. He was from Pittsburgh, but he's dyslexic. You know, he couldn't write recipes. He couldn't write use records, you know, and, and they're driving him crazy. And so we hired a sous chef that was really anal and really good at it. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, it's just, it's two different worlds. And also why restaurants and food and beverage departments, are, there's a lot more people. It takes a lot more people. And it's not as profitable. Hotel rooms are so much more profitable than food and beverage. So what happens is, is a lot of these large hotel companies are often driven by people that come out of a, a financial background. So they want to, they don't get why restaurants aren't as profitable. They just don't yeah. get it. So yeah. to them, it's just numbers. When in fact, it's numbers, it's productivity, it's all these things that have work for hotel rooms, but do not, and other businesses, but absolutely do not work for the sort of the uncertainty of restaurants. Because the reality is, okay, you know, the big thing we got, the biggest fights I got in the beginning was productivity. Well, you know, sure, it, it takes less people to do 100 covers than 200 covers if they all come in at the same time. But the reality is, is if they all show up at the same time, you need that number of bodies. Yeah. So you you can't cheat. You know, if you, you know, if you want to cut back and and that's what we learned in the first hotel we did, the one in Times Square, you know, they had budgeted because they'd never done business after pre-theater. They sent everybody home, you know, so we opened, we got a good chef there. We had a little press and suddenly, you know, there's no servers and Drew and I are running around taking all the tables. So, you know, it's, you know, it's two different mindsets. And, and I think, you know, where I became successful at 21C and then afterwards, um, after I left to start my own company, is really sort of the understanding of what the needs were and, if you will, the cultures of having run a hotel company and having run a, a restaurant company. And I think, you know, that helped me um, immeasurably, um, both in terms of getting 21C going and making it successful and then, you know, all the other projects I've worked on subsequently. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, there's so many great points that you've just shared. And I want to highlight a few things for people who are listening, because I think the fact that you took that momentum from that one client who was happy with you, right, in Times Square, and it just kind of snowballs. I think a lot of people overthink when they're trying to grow their business, whether that's in the restaurant space, hotel space, or any other space, they think that they have to like, oh, I have to have like all of these people different people, which is okay, but there is definitely value. You mean in terms of staff? Yes. And I think, well, even just in terms of like having customers in, right. And for you, in your case, with your consulting, you know, people who are now consulting, they always think of it in a way uh, that, okay, I have to have a hundred potential leads for me to consult for, which is fine. But I love your approach initially to just really, I'm sure you have other balls going, but to focus on that one particular client who is fantastically happy and then taking it to the next level and then into the hotel. So really organically understanding, right. And going yeah. forward. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, it's that, I mean, listen, consulting was an ancillary revenue stream for us that most importantly allowed us to pay people that had were loyal to us 
and doing a great job more than we could justify. You know, at some point, people stay with you. You can't give them, keep on giving them raises, you know, if the revenue doesn't increase. So, you know, this allowed us to some of our very, you know, talented, very loyal people, um, the opportunity, hey, it's sort of like, okay, you're going to, you know, you're going to be part of the elite squad and come and help us do this project or open it. So then we paid them some more, more money. And, you know, the real benefit it was is whenever you're doing consulting and whether it's a new place or a pro- place that has problems, it's a bit of a shit show. So the people that would help us would go back to their home restaurant and say, Jesus, I got it pretty good here. This place runs pretty well. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, mutual benefits. Also, it allowed us to test out. We did a lot of, you know, chefs or sommeliers or general managers, or bar managers who wanted to work with us. We would bring them on as consultants on some of these projects and see if, um, you know, they liked working with us and we liked working with them. Um, so there was a lot of benefits, particularly because it wasn't our core business. Um, and that allowed us, you know, to be a little more selective. You know, we never really built a staff for it. I mean, listen, we never had a restaurant till very late in the lifespan of, you know, we just sort of grabbed the table in a restaurant, yeah. you know, and we had, we had some very talented, you know, controllers working in the restaurants that we relied on. So, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's, listen, restaurants are face to face. You got to be there. And not having an office allowed us to be there and, and, and be hands-on and, and be able to walk in. And listen, originally we could walk to all the restaurants in Tribeca. And when you walk into a restaurant and if people don't look you in the eye, you know, there's a problem somewhere. And, you know, if you're sitting in the office all the time, you're not going to see, you're not going to feel that. Yeah. This is, this is, I love that because um, definitely being able to see certain things um, in person, which I think is, is crucial and I think for people who are, are thinking about, okay, well, where else can I find the edge? Sometimes it's right in front of your eyes. If you only are presently listening or presently or physically there, which I think is fantastic. I do want to highlight one more thing that you had mentioned earlier on for our audience um, who's watching and listening, the, the differences in culture between the hotels and the restaurant. And I think this is something that a lot of times you don't get to see or know until you're in it right, which is slightly difficult. Yes, you can talk to a number of people before you dive into something that you weren't so sure you want to dive into or not. But that those are things that you can't, it's not really written anywhere, right? It's not in any business book. It's it's just something that you, you have to know um, because you're there, you know, you're there and then you know it, right? So I think that's really interesting that you you highlight the difference between the two. And I think a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't guess it because they can't, a lot of times all you see is the dining room or the dining hall and just the service. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes, like people yelling at each other or whatever, right? There's a little bit of that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of that perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> In certain places, yes. <laughs> yeah. Especially the old school chefs. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. When does, because I know that um, speaking of culture, and I think this is important for businesses because a lot of times you, you, like you were saying, you know, restaurant calls you and then if the culture fits, right. And you're kind of, is this energizing? Is this exciting? Great. And then a lot of times it's like, well, you know, maybe not so much or whatever. Right. Um, when, and you said that how the old school <laughs> restaurant tours or chefs, they do it differently. When did you start? Pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> 
Wow, I hope there's no bloody stories. Well, there are. I won't share them. Okay, all right. Um, okay. So when when did you start seeing that shift, and why did you think that culture started to shift? Uh, I think it, you know, that sort of militaristic, um, fairly brutal kitchen culture came out of the, the French, out of France. That was how they ran their kitchens. That's how they taught and also sort of weeded out people. I mean, you know, okay, Goldman Sachs weeded out, weeds out people by having work hundred hours a week, you know, the, the great the pressure and, you know, and, and, you know, in, in, in the traditional French kitchens or the French influenced kitchens in New York, it was, you know, you know, it was similar. It was okay. How, how are you going to, can you stand it? Can you take it? You know, do you have the ability to withstand that pressure and the chaos and execute at a high level? So yep. some of it was certainly that. Um, <clears throat> and I would say, you know, as as Americans like myself and, and a lot of other people, you know, sort of fell into the business or were called to the business or, you know, later, wow, this is a cool business. Um, you know, I think there was they're brought in. Um, I don't know if egalitarian is quite the right word. But, you know, maybe an understanding that, hey, this is, you know, having played, listen, t- having played team sports was incredibly important to me in terms of becoming a good manager of teams. And it really was that experience. Well, listen, you know, you've got to get everybody involved. You've got to get everybody motivated. And, you know, and maybe it's just my personality, but, you know, a pat on the back works a little better than, you know, screaming at somebody. Yeah. Uh, at least that was my experience. So I, I think that, you know, listen, there's still, you know, very toxic kitchens and, you know, there always will be, but I think that, um, you know, there's a realization of, listen, you treat people well, they're going to treat the customers well. Mm. Well, I like that style. And I'm sure that the, you know, the kind of the ironclad style work in some cases, and perhaps it kind of helped things go faster. And I wonder if you can offer before, we, you know, before we keep going, um, a couple of suggestions as far as, you know, if somebody goes into a specific work culture, thinking that it, it's something else and then discovering that it's this, maybe to them it's toxic. Maybe it's not good for their personality or whatever. What were your, what would your suggestion be, you know, for them as far as maybe they transition, maybe they stick it out. Like how do uh, you I get another it? job? You know, it's like, listen, whenever I'd open a restaurant, I'd have the speech of, uh, Hey, if it's not, this isn't for you, don't stick around. Yeah. You know, it, it life's too short. Um, you know, there's a lot of other opportunities, a lot of other ways to make money. There's a lot of other career paths, you know, it, it don't make yourself miserable by staying in a, in a place that's not the right fit. I think that's the advice I, I think I would give anybody in any type of business. Um, you know, it may take you a while, but I think you'll find a, a good fit. Uh, the other thing I, I also teach everybody and, and this is something part of my experience is you know if you have a career calling in a certain industry <clears throat> you know work for as many good people as you can or successful people and now listen some of those workplaces are not going to be ideal for you they might be toxic but it's very important to see what people do well and it's even more important to understand what you want to steal and borrow or you're going to, or conversely, I would never do that. Yeah. So that you're able to build sort of your own business skills, management style, 
by, you know, working by, with successful people, some who, you know, you might take one thing from and everything else is toxic to you. But that one thing could make the difference. And those toxic things can make you a much better, you know, leader at some point by avoiding them. So I think it's, you know, that exposure to different, listen, and, and especially in the restaurant business, is, 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 is there's as many ways to run a restaurant as there are restaurateurs and chefs. Everybody does it a little differently. But that doesn't mean you can't be successful. But then it becomes a matter of finding out, you know, how, what's the best for you. And, and, it, I, and I, there's a young chef who I'd coached in the Little League. He was best friends with my older son. Gave his first restaurant job. He went on, Korean-American kid, Dookie, Dookie Hong. Became very successful in New York, moved out to L.A. I mean, to New York. I'm sorry, San Francisco. And he was, you know, he'd come out of John George, so he was a bit of a hard ass. Yeah. And, um, you know, he told me that, you know, through the pandemic and, you know, the struggles of that and, and taking on basically what was a charity restaurant associated with a ministry where it was all about helping people re- relaunch their life through job training in this, this restaurant. And he said, you know, I've learned I've got to be a better manager. I can't just be a chef and I can't just be a prick demanding perfection, you know, and and it was really great to hear. And, and I think that's an important understanding that um, particularly in hospitality where, you know, our job is to make other people happy and you can be demanding and forceful and insist upon high standards, but I think you have to treat people right because if you don't treat people right and they don't treat each other right, well, they're not going to treat, treat the guests right. Yeah. Or treat the business right or treat exactly. their responsibility right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I like that, um, you know, kind of that the the lessons that you take from a particular experience, you know, whether that's the right thing for you or not the right thing for you and something that you want to get out of, uh, sometimes that's worth more even just, you know, the however many years that you spend there. I know that, you know, to your point, a lot of the lessons that I've learned, especially in business, I, I learn from seeing how people have done it for 20, 30 plus years. And I go, that's great. That's, I don't want to do that. Like you said, you know, like, that's exactly what I said. Oh, so I don't, it's almost more important to say, I don't want to do that. That's not, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not who I am. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because stylistically, there are obviously within the ethical boundaries, you have to to kind of decide where you want to be, you know, and I think that's important because not all businesses are run perfectly and healthily. And yeah. so it depends on where you want to be in that spectrum. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, sure. So when I opened Oreo as a general manager, you know, Charlie Palmer was a chef partner and he was like, you know, an early American celebrity chef. His partner was old, old world Greek yeah. entrepreneur, you know, diners, you know, flea bag hotels made millions. Yeah. And I'd get caught in the middle <clears throat> and Steve, the owner would grab me all frustrated with Charlie and he'd take out this huge wad of hundreds that, you know, held with a rubber band, slap it down on the table and look me in the eye and say, are you in it for the glory or the gold and slap the table? The So, you know, and, and I think you also have to, and, and what that taught me was, is, you know, what is your motivation? You know, what's going to make you happy? For me, it's never been about the money. Um, you know, the money's important. The money really is a sort of, okay, we've been successful. We paid back our investors. 
But for me, it was always the team and the creativity and the collaboration and, and you know, in creating great teams that then could create great concepts and, and drive success. Um, you know, maybe I've been a little smarter, but I've been a little bit more about the money, but, you know, that never is what turned me on. Yeah. You know, and I think that's important to understand. Listen, some people are driven by money. That's fine. And, and you'd be very successful and very happy. But I think it's, you know, what fulfills you within your career, within your job. Um, I think it goes a long way to helping you be more successful and being happier in what you're doing. Yeah. And I think having the understanding um, and the awareness of the, you know, our relationship with money, our relationship with what we we think is fulfilling, right? And our purpose, I think all of those things, it used to be, I think, discussed separately. It's almost like business is all about the numbers and figures. Like you yeah. said, yes, it's important. It's got to keep going. But, um, you know, if all of these other areas are neglected, oftentimes you run out of fuel, right? You end up with the wrong decisions. And I do, yeah, it, it's really interesting. Or you have, you have an environment nobody wants to work in or nobody's going to take that extra step for yeah, and it's it's driven by fear, right? Or it's driven by, um, you know, I think it's very interesting motivation. Like, how do you? I think that's always a concept that we talk about. Whether it's motivating your uh, your own employees, motivating your colleagues, motivating your clients, right? Persuading them in the right ways. What does that look like? And um, I mean, me like you, kind of kind of similar to you. My personality, I just don't, you know, I don't. I don't motivate with fear because I, I, I mean, I'm a short little Asian woman like that. People would just laugh and walk off if that happens. And well, I'm a big, big white guy who played rugby and, you know, my nose is crooked because of it. So <laughs> I, 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 I had a little bit of an intimidating presence and still do, but you know, I'm not a hard ass. Yeah. I be tough, yeah. but I was not a hard ass. Yeah. Well, you don't intimidate me, which is slightly Good. heartening. I'm glad. Yeah, for a lot of people. Although maybe you do want to. I don't know. What's the no, I don't. It's, I've never, that's never been my thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think having clarity on where you stand on that spectrum, to your point, very, very crucial, right? Um, now, I do want to touch on speaking of clarity, because when people run businesses, they have a stream of income, however many, one or more, Sometimes they come to a juncture where obviously they start thinking about, okay, should I take this to another level? Should I introduce this new arm of the business, scale it, right? And sometimes that decision-making is is difficult because they don't know whether it's going to work, whether it's the right time, right? Whether that's the right platform or whatever, a way or outlet, whatever it is, concept. I'm curious if you can re- uh, revisit your day's at Nobu and Myriad and how you decided, or maybe Nobu, how they decided to, I think you touched on you opening up uh, Nobu, what is it, Nobu Neighbors or what was that? It was Next Door Nobu. Next Door Nobu. And then um, obviously with your own business, you have this, uh, as we touched on, you have leaned into the momentum. But I'm kind of curious at what point did, you know, did, did you guys have those, moments of being able to say yes or no to, to scaling? Uh, you know, I think it was weighing the different opportunities. Um, it was also driven by, did we want to go there? Was it a cool city? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, and, and, and then lastly, was it a direct flight? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it was, and also did we know other restaurateurs there? who we could pick their brain and understand the market before we went in there. And, uh, 
you know, it was also the quality of the deal. Um, you know, that had a lot to do with, okay, that, that would be something that, you know, all the things we did was, you know, ultimately what is the quality of the deal? Are these good partners, whether that be a Nobu or consulting project or a joint venture? <clears throat> and then was it someplace we, we wanted to go? We wanted to hang out because listen, you, you go, you know, you, you spend a lot of time there. So it had to be someplace that we wanted to travel to and, and, and be part of. And it also helped, you know, not so much with Nobu, a little bit, but it, the other projects we did, did we have somebody already working for us that maybe wanted to go back home? Or his, you know, girlfriend was, or, or boyfriend was, you know, so there's, you know, different, you know, each one was, each deal was different, but it was sort of driven by those things I talked about. Um, and then it, you know, looking back on it, um, you know, I think Danny Meyer might have been smarter in some ways by, you know, you know, having us less restaurants, never leaving New York till Shake Shack, which was something that he could really blow up. So I think, listen, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah. Well, and I like that your, um, you know, you touched on really that personal aspects as well. Like, do we have people who we can trust? Is it a direct flight, which is really convenient? Critical. Yeah, very critical, right? If you have to be stuck somewhere and you're catching the next leg, you know, the, the service sort of blown up or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. But uh, I think understanding that the day-to-day <laughs> logistics and decision-making yeah. matters just as much, if not more, than kind of, you know, again, like you were saying, in your case, structure of the deal. In a lot of people's cases, maybe it's an investment or whether they should buy into certain things, right? Um, but having the understanding of, okay, do we even want to be there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think also too, it's like we'd seen a, there was a couple other restaurants concepts that had rolled out, ended up failing um, because they, they expanded too quickly and, and got into some bad locations. So, you know, that sort of sobered us. We thought that, you know, wow, this is, wow, that's amazing. And then suddenly, you know, they're out of business because they, you know, opened, you know, they got 30 restaurants, but you know, six of the locations are, you know, bring the company down. So, that really sobered us and, and, and sort of, you know, made us very cautious. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, let's kind of touch on that just a second, because you mentioned <clears throat> bad locations, which obviously I know, obviously you've done deep research right before you go into, but like, like so many things, sometimes you just don't know until you're in it. And um, what was it that, you know, just from your memory bank that you go, okay, this is great initially. And then turns out, I don't know, maybe there's no traffic, too much competition. Yeah. We don't well, yeah, it's, you know, we, first of all, with restaurants and bars, how does the space make you feel? You know, it, it's a raw space. You walk in, does it make you feel better? Or does it depress you? That's the starting point. And, and you know, location then is, is obviously driven by, you know, is your clientele already there? Will they come there? And, you know, are there any obstacles to them getting there? You know, the one sort of big failure we had was the first time we went to Midtown in the Sony building. And, you know, it was one of these things where, you know, we'd had great success with Nobu and other concepts. We could do no wrong. You know, we could just mail it in and we're going to, you know, get, you know, Ray reviews and pack them in. Yeah. And, you know, we were busy and, and, you know, we did not do our homework and it was a great deal. And, and, you know, there's a reason why you should be suspicious of great deals. And this was certainly it. So it was an interior 
restaurant space inside the Sony building off of their atrium. Mm. Now we thought all the Sony executives who came down to Nobu would come down the elevator and, you know, roll right in. Yeah. What we didn't know was that the Sony experience, which was very kid driven, was not open. And so when we opened up, the Sony executives go out another part way of the building and the atriums filled with screaming kids <laughs> waiting to go in or just come out of this experience. So it was just, it was a real mistake. Um, the restaurant did not last long. Uh, it was compounded, I think, by my partner's uh, mistake of firing uh, a very talented chef who was ready for a comeback and, and who later had a great comeback and who I thought very highly of. So there were a lot of mistakes made. Um, the number one being that we believed our press, believed our own bullshit, <laughs> and, and certainly did not do our homework. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the, in yeah. terms of location and the viability, the pros and cons of location. Yeah. Beyond well, I, that, other than that, boy, this is a great deal for Midtown. Yeah, and there's a reason why there's a, it was a great deal. Right. Because they know, right. They know, yeah, they know that, you know, challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's so cool that you shared that because, you know, a lot of times when you're buzzing with success, you're buzzing <clears> with something that just worked. Oftentimes the next step is, is a misstep because you're, you're clouded by, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, absolutely. You think that, you know, whatever you do next is going to have the same success yeah. and the same, same, press is going to show up and write about you, same customers. And it's not, you know, that's not how it happens. You know, you're only as good as, you know, your, your last meal, the last drink you served. And, and, you know, that's sort of the razor's edge of restaurants or a lot of businesses. And, you know, I think, you know, that's why, listen, we never thought about scaling. And I think that's why a lot of people start off today thinking about, do I have a concept that will scale because of that consistency factor The you know, the fact that it's proven and, you know, once you've gone through some trial and error, you, you know what location works for this concept. You know what size it should be. Uh, you know where it should be in a city. And, um, you know, I think that takes some of the risk out of the, you know, listen, restaurants are very risky. And, and certainly I think that's one of the reasons people scaled. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, because you touched on essentially, you know, that head chef, the, the one that you guys fired or or would have yeah, come back. Yeah, I didn't fire him. Drew fired him. <laughs> Drew did. Blame it on Drew. Yeah. Uh, but he blamed a lot on me, so it was a fair <laughs> game. Yeah. You didn't we had a good that. partnership because we both had very different skill sets. And what he was great at and loved to do, I was not and I hated doing, and vice versa. Yeah. So this we is, stayed I out think. of each other's way. It was really good. Great partnership. Great, great experience. Yeah, I think this is worth highlighting again and again because – I think one of the the most important and most crucial investment that we can make is in people, whether that's people that we collaborate with, like in your case, you and Drew are just like yin and yang, complementary, beautiful, right? And I think this is often even more important than the business idea a lot of times, you know, because it just runs beautifully. But also, um, you know, your point on that chef that got fired so important to hire and, and invest in the right people, even if it means it costs a little bit more, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. But I think a lot of people cloud their judgment in what's good in the infinite game, as Simon Sinek would always say, mm-hmm. um, because they're like, well, you know, I want to save money here. All good, you know, but I think to your point, 
I think investing in things that are organic, things that you can't really buy, those intangibles, uh, really are kind of the secret sauce to just. Oh yeah, it's people. People drive success, and and people that are you know buy into it and then become part of great teams uh, drive success in every business. It's there's no there's no substitution, and you see that in hospitality and restaurants because hey, it's only people. You know, yeah. you, you could run a restaurant with a, you know, some, you know, charcoal and a grill. You don't need, you know, any kind of salt, you know, and collect the money. And, and but again, it's people face to face and you make them happy. And, you know, if you can hire people that want to make other people happy, people that love the action and, and people that, you know, strive for excellence. And I think that that definitely translates to pretty much every other business. Yeah, I I, ha- I wholeheartedly agree. I do want to ask you. I mean, you've touched on so many aspects of, you know, successes and failures, where you went right, where you went wrong. I want to ask you, you know, if you could, uh, what would you have a do-over with? Like, what would you do differently in your career? Um, if I was starting over today, I would pick a place in the country and create a, a series of, of small sort of restaurant hospitality businesses. There's some f- friends that have done that, young people that worked in New York and then they moved to the Catskills. And they've got a restaurant, they have a general store, they have some Airbnbs. And, and I just think that, you know, the, as there's a trade-off in any business in terms of, you know, work-life, family balance. And, uh, you know, I certainly made some sacrifices on the family side um, and, and certainly on the life side. Uh, you know, and I think maybe the restaurant business takes more of your time. Um, and obviously nights, weekends and holidays when you'd want to be with your friends and family. But I think if I, if I was starting over today, I, I would, you know, do something like these friends have done. I just think it's, it's brilliant. And I think the other thing too, I think it's so important today to be part of a community to help make a community better. I think one of the real positives um, I see coming out of the pandemic in relation to particularly restaurants is how restaurants have really helped feed people yeah. become more embedded in the community, more embedded in the, in, in helping to reestablish local food systems. I, I just incredibly optimistic um, about that. And, and it really makes me happy. So, you know, I, I would want to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are beautiful and your self awareness, you know, into that, areas of your life where you feel like, you know, this can, this can be better, even though it's great already. Right. Um, I think is, is useful and is useful to hear from people like you who've kind of weathered the storm, who've kind of gone through different paths, right. Um, flipped brochures a few times and, and see, okay, where would I have done things a little bit differently, which is fantastic. Now for the last question, um, I want to ask you about when you might be, uh, you know, the proudest in your work and career. I think, one of the beautiful things about running a business, helping other people, whether it's in the food space, in my case with other businesses, you know, online, offline, doesn't matter. It's um, for me, it's always being able to help people. And there are definitely moments when I'm like, this is why I wake up every single morning. Right. And so uh, when were, when were some of those moments, if you can perhaps. Well, number one, my wife still talks to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> that you know what? That's really important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, number two that uh, you know my three sons went from thinking I was a moron when they were teenagers to somebody yeah. who's pretty cool, and, and the joke is that I'm a minor celebrity. <laughs> because at one point I took them all down to Austin when I was speaking at the Texas Hill Country uh, Food Wine and Food and Wine Festival, and I was invited to play in a celebrity golf tournament, which they were fascinated with. And I said, "Listen, I'm a minor celebrity. Don't get too excited." <laughs> so that's been the ongoing family joke ever since. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and, and then I think probably what I'm most proud of is the people that I've coached and mentored throughout my career, uh, the people that worked for me. Um, or that I've come in contact that I've helped in their careers and seen them go on to great success. Um, you know, the second restaurant tour I worked for told me late one night as drinking at the bar after the restaurant was closed, she turned to me and said, if you end up in this life, it's because you have to pay for the sins of your past lives. Yeah. So I've certainly had some great past lives, but I think I've paid it forward by, uh, being a great mentor and a great coach uh, of a lot of people in the business. And, and I think when I hear people talk about me or pay me a compliment it, it, and they talk about the people I've helped I mean, I think that's the most satisfying. Yeah. I think this the is people so I've inspired. Yeah. This is so fantastic. And obviously congratulations on wife still speaking to you, which is that's, a huge, yeah. it's a huge accomplishment. She still laughs at my jokes too. So <laughs> That's another, you know, sometimes you're like, well, not so funny anymore, right? And, and that's um, really those are when I think one of the, the most beautiful sounds on this earth is of a, you know, baby laughing or giggling, yeah. you know, someone you care about, right? Um, saying something and you can hear the smile in their voice. And, you know, to your point, your son's uh, looking up to you and seeing dad in action. And wow, has he accomplished a lot. And Look at him. He knows all these people and yep. <laughs> maybe even use them. I can get him reservations. I can get him the clubs they can't get into. That's, you know, when I hey, went out in Miami for a bachelor weekend with some friends, oh, where, where can you get us in? Yeah. That's, that's when I really, that's when I really impress. You got some brownie points there. I got some, I got some juice. Pop's got some juice. Yeah. They never cared about your work before, but now they're like, okay, this is good. Can you hook us up? Yeah, <laughs> this is so great. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for you know sharing with us. I think these are all phenomenal. And some of the lessons and insights that you've shared, so much to unpack, obviously, even within this time that we've spent together. We can spend many more hours together, you know, again, rehashing and just expanding. So I, I thank you for being here and sharing your expertise and insights. Uh, last but certainly not the least, I want to share uh, ways that you know people can learn more from you. Where can they uh, find you? Uh, Talia, thank you very much. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. It's brought back a lot of memories. And I hope I haven't uh, told any stories out of school um, too much. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm also on Instagram as uh, Michael Bonnetties. Phenomenal. Michael, thank you so much. Be sure to hit that follow, subscribe, at collect, save, and download.